0: If you want to look at Romans chapter 8, we're looking at the the doctrine of the Holy Spirit after we have finished a series about the work of Christ. And today, the title of this, this subject is The Work of the Holy Spirit in a Christian's Assurance. Assurance that they have an interest in the things of Christ, saving faith, eternal salvation. Now, in Romans chapter 8, beginning at verse 12, it's talking about the Holy Spirit. And so Paul writes and says, So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revelation of the sons of God. Well, as we look at this passage of scripture and we're talking about Christian assurance, many people that you'll meet that come to faith in Christ will at some point in time struggle with the idea, am I truly a believer? Am I truly a Christian person? And and that's not uncommon. And as we begin to think about this, we, we might be served to go to the beginnings of our Christian uh, pilgrimage and, and start to think about this idea of assurance from that basis. Now, I can remember being in the John Knox Presbyterian Church in Orlando, Florida, and was in that church from the time that I was probably about four, maybe a little younger, to the time I was about six, and then we moved back to Palm Beach County. But it was in that time that they taught me John 3.16. I can remember it just as clear as a bell. That 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 was when that happened in that little church. Well, do we believe that that verse? Do we believe John 3.16? And in particular, do we believe the part where it comes and says, Whoever believeth in him will not perish but have everlasting life. Whoever believeth in him. Now, do we believe that? Is that something that we hold to personally as a personal truth, but is it something that we hold to as this is the truth of God's word, this is God's promise? Or how about this one? Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved, not may be saved, could be saved, should be saved, but will be saved. Do we believe that verse? Well, let me say it this way to you. If you had a friend and you knew that that friend for a good long time and you knew that friend was not a Christian, not that they were the worst person in the world, it's just they knew they weren't a Christian, everybody else knew they weren't a Christian, but now over a period of time, This person has come to understand the gospel, understand who Jesus is according to the scripture, and now this person's come to place their faith in Christ Jesus. So that's happened to them. You've been a Christian for a long time. They've been a Christian maybe only for a day or a few weeks or something like that. Could you fearlessly talk to that person and tell them that they should believe that, God is their father, that the father of our Lord Jesus Christ has become their father. Could you do that fearlessly? Now, the reason I'm saying that is if we say yes to that, we say yes if a person believes, then this has a great deal to say about the way we should think about ourselves as Christians struggling with assurance we go back and we say, well, what did Jesus promise? What's the word of God say? Have I responded to the word of God and to what Jesus has promised in the way that historically Christians have done this? And we say, well, we have done that. Well, as a pastor, I would want to say that that's the very beginning place that I would want to start with each and any one of you that was struggling with the idea of the assurance of your own personal salvation. Now, you might say, you know some people that struggle like this. Well, that might be a good place to begin. Now, we're Presbyterians here. Some of you are Baptists. You know, some of you could be in some way uh, a, a part of an independent church, but, uh, If you were in one of those categories, and you went back into the time of Great Britain in the 1500s, where there was a lot of religious Christian upheaval, there was the desire upon a group called the Long Parliament to establish what they called religious uniformity in the kingdom. And so they called an assembly of ministers and they represented Episcopalians. They represented um, Independents. They represented Baptists. These people were all a part of the religious life of the British Isles. Now from Scotland, they called the Presbyterians. And they came down. But the interesting thing is that the Parliament didn't trust the Presbyterians. <laughs> well. There you go. So they would let the Presbyterians enter into the daily debates of this assembly, but they'd never let them vote. They could talk, but you can't count. And so they met for almost five years, and they came up with a confession of faith, came up with a couple of catechisms. Well, interesting enough, they give a whole chapter over to this doctrine of the assurance a Christian should have that they belong to Christ. So this document has a history that encompasses the Baptists today. The Baptist Church, Southern Baptist Church today, holds to the very doctrines that I'm going to read to you right now historically. So here's what it says in chapter 18. Although hypocrites and other unregenerate men may vainly deceive themselves with false hopes and carnal presumptions of being in the favor of God and in a state of salvation, which hope of theirs shall perish, yet such as truly believe in the Lord Jesus and love him in sincerity, endeavoring to walk in all good conscience before him, may in this life be certainly assured that they are in the state of grace and may rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, which hope shall never make them ashamed. Then the next paragraph says, This certainty is not a bare conjecture and probable persuasion grounded upon a fallible hope, but an infallible assurance of faith founded upon the divine truth of the promises of salvation, the inward evidence of those graces unto which these promises are made, the testimony of the spirit of adoption, witnessing with our spirits that we are the children of God, which spirit is the earnest of our inheritance, whereby we are sealed to the day of redemption. Now, basically, they just quoted uh, Romans eight sixteen. In Romans eight sixteen, the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father, the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. All right, now let's just stop and think, this is in Romans chapter 8, Paul's the author, the destination is Rome. Rome is the capital of the empire. It's the basically the capital of the world, at the modern world at that time. Now, Paul's writing to this church. He's planning to go there to visit. He knows that as he makes an influence on the church in Rome, that he's going to influence the churches of the whole world and that by making this influence in the churches of the world, he is going to affect the change of the course of human history. Paul knows this. So he writes, and right in the center of this is this whole chapter that deals with a Christian's assurance. So he's writing in here in chapter 8, and he's saying that the, the Christian comes to some point in his life where he recognizes that he's calling on God as his Daddy Father, Abba Father. Chip and I had an Old Testament professor named Van Gameren when we were in seminary. And Dr. Van Gemmeren, uh, we used to tease about him because he was so formal. He was a very short little man, and he wore high heels all the time. And uh, But he was very, very, very formal, and we would, every graduation, people would take pot shots at the various professors, and no one they liked to take more pot shots at than Dr. Van Gemmeren. And they would say, Dr. Willem, Dr. Willem something Van Gameren, is our Old Testament professor, and he's better known to his wife and children as Dr. Willem Van Gameren." <laughs> but he was that kind of a guy. And uh, he, he was always talking about these various texts, but he always got his children calling Abba. So he was never father. He was never daddy. His daughters always called their father Abba from this. I remember him telling about the children answering the phone on Sunday and the little girls would answer the phone and they would say, you want to speak to Abba? You cannot speak to him? This is the Shabbat. He put the phone down. <laughs> it was Sunday. He didn't do business on Sunday. It was the Shabbat, the Sabbath day. Abba. We come to a point in time in our life as Christians when we we call upon God this way in tenderness and affection, but also in desperation. The Holy Spirit comes alongside our spirit. Notice that it's saying it's the Holy Spirit and it's our spirit. It's not that the two are mixed together, but we have a spiritual side of us, that side of us that is our conscience, that our rationality, really the core of who we are as a person, and then the Holy Spirit. And and so we come to a point in time where we become somewhat convinced in our own person that we are a Christian, and that's one thing. But the idea of the Holy Spirit coming alongside of us and convincing us we're a Christian, that's something else again. That's more than just our own spirit's awareness that we are a Christian, And the Holy Spirit causes us to call God as our Father. Now, Paul's writing to this culture. And there are multiple reasons why, as he's writing to the church in Rome, that he would want these believers, part of the church, to see themselves as the children of God. And one of the reasons that would be is because of all the manner of false religions and things that were a part of the Roman culture of the day. If you were a Roman and you were a good Roman, it could be you could be a citizen and be a good Roman, or you could be a non-citizen and be a good Roman as well. But if you were a citizen of Rome during this time, you were caught up in what was known as the imperial cult. And in the imperial cult, the people looked at Caesar as God. Now, later on, it's going to become a church crisis because Rome is going to take offense at the church. The church taught the Christians to say, Jesus is Lord. Rome taught their citizens to say, Caesar is Lord. And Christians wouldn't do that. And oftentimes, they're persecuted and even put to death because they affirm that Jesus was Lord and they would not even state that Caesar was Lord. So if you were a good Roman and you confessed Caesar is Lord, well, guess who you were? You were the children of the deity. You were the children of Caesar. And so this was one of the principal things that was going on in the culture. Now, all around the, the, the world at that time, in the major cities, The cities were caught up in something that we call guilds. Now today it might be unions, but unions and guilds aren't quite the same thing. Uh, My grandfather on my mother's side was a guild-trained machinist from New York City. And the education that he received through that guild and training him to be a machinist he went on to be a uh, locomotive machinist. He went on to hold patents in the uh, early 1900s for drum-type brakes. Um, I could go on and on and tell you, that my grandfather was a brilliant man, especially in the area of math, but he got all of this not through a college or a school or a uni- anything like that. It was the training the Guild gave him. Now, in the sense... Of these things back in the time of Rome, these guilds had patron deities. And so if you were caught up in a guild, you were caught up in the worship of the patron of that guild. And if you were caught up in this, then you would be uh, a person that saw yourself as a child of that particular god. Um, You're familiar with polytheism. Well, polytheism is the kind of ideas that there are multiple gods and you worship multiple gods. That's not what these people believed in. Now, what they believed in was something called heno, henotheism. Now, henotheism basically means this I only worship one god, but I recognize that you worship a different god and you worship a different god. You worship your one. You worship your one, I worship my one. And so all these people were worshiping these various gods and seeing themselves, well, as being the children of that, that deity. The same way there were cults. The cults were different in that they weren't guilds, but they were um, They're very structured. There are tremendous initiatory rites into these cults. They had baptisms and washings and sacrifices and secrets and rites. And they would basically, again, attach themselves to some god. These things came from all over the Oriental world as they traveled to the West into Europe. And these things were all caught up with the Nordic countries. And you read about all the Nordic worship that was uh following the time of uh, our understanding of the history of those parts of the world as Christianity spread, it came into conflict with these cults in the various places. You could think in Great Britain of Stonehenge and the Druids and all of that kind of stuff. Well, all of these things were rampant at Rome at the time, and these people all saw themselves as the children of God. Christians saw themselves as the children of God through the person of Jesus Christ. And they saw that through Jesus Christ that the power of God was manifested in God raising him from the dead in his ascending into heaven and being seated at the right hand of God. And the Christians saw themselves that they were related to Christ and God was distinctly the father of Jesus Christ but because they were related by to Christ through faith that the God of the scriptures was their father what did Jesus teach them what did Jesus teach them about this Well, what does he teach us when you pray say our father Well, this is what Jesus taught. These people were understanding that that wasn't just something to learn, but that was the truth. This is what's real. When everything else isn't real, this remains real. Our Father. God is my Father. And so these people saw themselves as being united to the one God who created heaven and earth, and had manifested himself through his son, Jesus Christ. Now, a second aspect of this is they knew as Christians, this is where it really comes to play with Romans 8. They knew as Christians that they were to fight against and they were to work to triumph over all sin that was in their life. Now, this is the way they were trained. There was no other way to think about sin other than sin is something that I am to conquer and I am to triumph over. But they also were aware of Romans chapter 7 and that there is this tremendous struggle always going on within the heart and mind of the Christian. The Christian knows what God requires from the moral law. He knows all of these aspects of the Ten Commandments, and most of the Christians would even be aware clearly of all the, the subformulations of each one of these laws and how you find it very difficult in the whole area of worshiping God purely to do it perfectly and that you're caught up with your own idolatries. Um, You're caught up with your own will. It's the Lord's day. The Lord's day is to be kept in a certain manner, but we, well, I say it this way, so many people cram so much into six days of the week that it can't help but spill over into the seventh day of the week. Or they cram so much in, and then they feel like they've got to have some relief and so instead of worshiping on the Lord's day, what they do on the Lord's day is they fill it up with recreation so they can get themselves right to go back to work. But there are all kinds of, we violate the Lord's day. We know we violate the Lord's day. We violate the laws towards fathers and mothers. We violate the laws on murder through anger. We violate the laws of uh, adultery just by watching television. I mean, it's just hard to do if you're on any type of thing that's uh, on TV or you go to a movie, you turn on the Internet. You know, the idea isn't to portray immorality. It's to get you to participate in the immorality that you're viewing. So we're caught up in these whole things, and, and we know we're supposed to triumph over we're to turn from all sin. How are we doing? Well, I'd say some of us are struggle real hard with it. I think the more that we want to triumph over that, the more difficult we find it. The more sincere we are to be a follower of Christ in a decaying and in a fallen world, the more we're aware of our own sin. Well, this was true of these people. And this is where Romans 8 applies more and more to this whole doctrine of Christ, looking to Christ in the daily living of our lives in conflict with sin. Now, that's what we've been talking about, how Christ triumphed. Now, I'm saying we're failing. Christ is triumphing. Now, what do we do? Do we compare? If we merely compare, what are we going to do every single time? We lose. That's not why Christ is an example. It's not why Christ portrays himself as the sole object of our faith. We see that Christ triumphed over sin, and we look to him in our conflict with sin to give us strength, and to give us forgiveness. Now, we talk about the work of Christ, and here we're talking about the work of the Holy Spirit. Now, until you get to Romans chapter 8, the Holy Spirit is kind of of dropped in chapter after chapter. Hardly mentioned at all in chapter 7, When you come to chapter 8, it's over 20 times that the Holy Spirit is referred to. Now, you know, that's one of those things where you say you need to be able to, you know, smell the roses and all that kind of stuff. You need to see this. We're called to live the Christian life. We're called to triumph over sin. Sin's a very difficult thing to triumph over. It wants to remaster us. There's a great conflict. We look to Christ. We see what Christ has done. Now, how does what Christ has done benefit us in this? Well, I've been trying to teach you to think this way. That the Holy Spirit comes to accomplish in us all that the Lord Jesus Christ has accomplished for us. So when we think about the, the Christian life, when we think about the Holy Spirit, we begin to say, well, the Holy Spirit's going to be working in me to make me like Christ. Say it a different way. Begin with Christ. Christ comes to be our Savior. So all that Christ has accomplished for us in being our Savior the Holy Spirit now takes and begins to accomplish in us. Now the way you need to think about this is from using the Holy Spirit as the beginning of the equation. Think about it from that perspective. Then come back and make Jesus Christ the beginning of your thinking and think of it from that perspective. Same truth, what Jesus accomplished for you in living his life the Holy Spirit wants to accomplish in you so that you can live your life triumphant over sin and living a godly way of living. So we look at this and we see here is this verse again that the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. Our spirit tells us something. Maybe our spirit says I, my, I believe. I believe the word of God. That's my spirit talking. So I believe the word of God. I believe the gospel message. Believe what it says about Jesus. I have believed it. I was about 22 when I believed it. You know, 20, 42 years ago. So I've been believing it for 42 years personally, savingly. Well, that's my spirit. Now, during this 42 years, there have been some highs and there have been some lows, real lows. There have been everything in between. And during those times, you know, I can gin myself up about I know the truth and I believe what it says. But that doesn't do me a whole lot of good when I'm failing Because my failing threatens me. What do we do? This is where Romans in general is teaching us. This verse in particular. Think of Jesus. Think of Jesus. Think of this verse. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. think of Jesus. Jesus have any trials? Do you remember the people that wanted to come after he healed everybody at Simon Peter's house? remember that? What did Jesus do that night? He got up early in the morning and he went out to pray. He says, Father, these people like me healing them. They're going to be here in force in the morning. And they want me to heal them. That's not why you sent me. These people want to get me off course. Father, direct my paths. So the disciples come in the morning and they say, everybody's looking for you. (laughs) What's Jesus say? Let's go to other towns and villages because that's what I was called for. Isn't that fascinating? How did Jesus do that? Well, he called on the name of his father. And his father gave him direction look at all these temptations finalized could see him in the temptations initially in the wilderness but you see him primarily in the focus in the garden of Gethsemane father if it be your will let this cup pass but not my will but thy will be done You see it in his sufferings. He's on the cross. The people are spread out in front of him. What's he say? Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Now it's almost the end. And what's he say? Father, into thy spirit, I commit myself, and he gave up the ghost. Now, what did Jesus do in a trial? What did he do in a temptation? What did he do in suffering? What did he do in death? (laughs) He called upon his father. (laughs) That's what he did. Now, the Holy Spirit has come to accomplish that in us. That's what the Holy Spirit's come to do. You're his his child. You're going to go through trials, temptations, suffering, persecutions, and ultimately death. What, What is the way forward? Well, what did Jesus say? To whom did Jesus go? To whom did Jesus entrust himself? That's what we need to see. So Romans 7 speaks to the great personal conflict of people and their desire to please God, to be obedient to his moral law, to be pleasing to him in every respect. And Romans 6, 816 and 17 begin to lead us to understand that we're going to have suffering. So in 817, the next verse from the one we're looking at. If we're children, then we're heirs, we're heirs of God, and we're fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may be glorified with him. This idea of the work of the Holy Spirit with our spirit is directly related to our suffering as Christians. It may be merely the sufferings that we experience as we go through all what we could call the vicissitudes of a Christian life, the ups and downs that that come as a part of it. Now, that's when we call upon the name of the Lord. Let's look at it this way quickly. We're to remember that Jesus was sent by the Father to rescue us in the midst of our trials. So we sin in some grievous way, and there's a real temptation to believe that God is now angry with us because of what we've done. That is a very common fallacy. Now, if we know the truth that Jesus is our propitiation, this is what we were talking about one Wednesday, then we know that Jesus took the wrath of God on him, on himself. And so we say, no, Father, no, that's not right. You're not angry with me over this sin. Yes, you're going to discipline me, but you're my father, Because Christ is my propitiation, you will never be angry with me. And ah, the Spirit is bearing witness with the word that we belong to the Father. We don't believe our Father's angry with us, even though he's disciplining us. In our sin, we may believe, I can't believe it. I'm slipping more and more into a pattern of sin. Oh, no, is sin reclaiming its bondage over me? People believe that. People have experienced that. Well, if we we look at the cross, we say, no, Jesus is my redemption. Jesus is my redeemer. Jesus has set me free from the law of sin and death. We say, no, Father, no, you have set me free. I need to follow you through Christ. But the Holy Spirit helps us to call on God as Father, that he's the one that set us free. We may believe when we've sinned in some kind of a grievous way that there has been a huge separation. There is an Old Testament verse that speaks to this. And so people have taken and misused that verse in the Christian experience that this sin separates us but what does the scripture say? No, Father, you've promised that you were reconciled to me and that I have peace with God. You're going to carry me through this trial, this suffering, this temptation. Many people who have fallen into some grievous sin patterns feel that they have become defiled and they have become unclean, and they look at themselves with shame before their father. And they think of themselves that way. But the child of God will look and say, No, Father, Jesus is my sacrifice. He has cleansed my conscience from dead works that I might serve the living God. This is what the book of Romans is telling us. All these words, all of these phrases come directly out of the first seven chapters of the book of Romans. This is what it means for the Holy Spirit to come alongside of us and have us, instead of look at our sin and our suffering, to look at our Savior and our suffering and see that he saved us to the uttermost. Well, we need to close there. Maybe we'll bring one more of these things up uh, on how Christ also, or the Holy Spirit, continues to bring this, this deliverance to us and the assurance that we're saved. But it has many aspects, but it's all the Spirit reminding us that we belong to Christ. Well, let's pray. Father, bless us, keep us, help us to see these things, help us to embrace these things, help us to embrace Christ more, and call upon you as our Father more. And know that as we do this, that there are going to come times when it's going to be very difficult and the way we're going to call upon you is because the Holy Spirit's going to be working in our hearts in just impelling us to call on you as our Heavenly Father, knowing that through Christ we have the full cleansing forgiveness of our sins. We give thanks to you for Him and for the Holy Spirit. Amen.